Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, uh, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. It's only been a week, but uh, we have some things to talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, I See, I should be prepared. Vamp, Tyler. Okay, so what's in the news today? Oh, the Golden Globe nominations are in the news today. And uh, listeners, I'm sure you'll be very happy to know that I got 10 whole points for our oh, fantasy God, Oscar draft. Oh, God, I wish I had not asked you to vamp. No <laughs> if you cares. ask me to vamp, that's where it's going. No one cares. I'm letting you know in advance. I would love for people to comment. Okay, here's what I want. Like, the idea of the... The Oscar, the, the, the fantasy award season thing that we do mm. is a great idea, and I really think we should put, like, a rule book and forms and stuff sure. on the websites so people, so people can, like, start their own leagues and everything. But I don't, I personally can't imagine that anyone who's not in our league cares about the specifics of who has what on their team or whatever in here. Th- so I want people to comment. And don't, if you don't, if you don't care... Don't think, well, I don't care, so I don't comment. Because I want to hear that you don't care. Because, you want to count that as a vote. Yes, because my that's my whole like premise here. No, my it, whole hypothesis is, it, is, is it, that you don't I, care. Is it, I don't care if you say it or not. Then that could be either. Or oh, if it's okay. literally... Okay. Okay. Oh, yes. Do you enjoy it? Or do you actively not enjoy right. when Tyler talks about who he has and how many points he got for his team? I, that's what I want comment in the comment section on this... Uh, on this uh, movie journal. David is winning. I'm uh, sure you'll be happy to know that. No, I see. I wasn't going to say that. Oh, that's well, you don't have to. I did. Okay. Once, um, once again, I'm losing and I'm always going to lose. For some reason, I'm terrible at this. Yeah. You should be good at this. I don't pay attention to awards. It's just a weird, it, it's, I don't know. It's a weird, uh, a weird thing that my first, my first choice was a really, really good choice, but you never quite know where critics are going to go. And maybe all my choices are great for Oscars and for action, for like peer awards, but for critics groups, I don't get a lot. And so it can be, that's, that's the thing. You got to find the sweet spot and I never have. (laughs) Well, let's, let's talk about some movies. Absolutely. All right. Uh, the first thing I saw was now, uh, if you remember, I think it was during our AFI fest episode with Scott, Mm uh, he and I both shared uh, the opinion that when we find out a movie is some country's official submission to the Oscars, that tends to make us wary. Yeah. There are plenty of exceptions to this. One of those is if the country in question happens to be Slovakia, because that's not a country you don't see a lot of Slovakian cinema. Yeah, not really. So when I got an invite to uh, an advanced screening um, of a movie that I don't even think has a, uh, an actual release date... Um, I, I jumped at the chance because I was like, yeah, this sounds like a, it's like, what? It's a 75-minute dark, dry, comic docudrama from Slovakia? Yeah, I'm going to see that. It's called yeah. Koza, K-O-Z-A, which is apparently the Slovakian word for goat. Okay. Uh, and it is about a um, former Olympic boxer. And this is where, like, I guess reality and fiction blend. The actor, quote-unquote, is actually a former Olympic boxer. Okay. Um, but in the movie, I don't know what his circumstances are in real life. In the movie, he has fallen on hard times. He doesn't have, he's, you know, probably not the most, uh, intellectually astute after years of getting punched in the head. He's, um, not financially doing well. He lives with his, um, girlfriend and her child. Um, and then his girlfriend gets pregnant and she, uh, wants an abortion because she already has one kid. They don't, they don't have enough money to take care of her. Right. And so he decides to get back in the ring. He goes on a sort of books like four uh, fights and takes his boss at the scrapyard where he works as his manager. And they go on a road trip um, to a series of like small fights where he can get, you know, get, get some money. And uh, like I said, it's only 75 minutes. It's, it would have been a good, um, good to see it before our discussion last week about long takes because it is one of those Mm. movies where most scenes unfold in one take not all of them but most of them do um is static shot or an active camera mostly static but there but not it's not it's not like that formally strict it's just uh, uh pretty much uh pretty much one shot per scene and pretty much static cameras um it is an incredibly depressing movie, okay, in some ways because 
sounds like it. These are not, you know, just seeing this kind of poverty and also the boss slash, ma- slash manager is also kind of a creep who takes advantage of mm-hmm. of uh, Koza. Um, but it also, that, that tone um, allows for some very, uh, very dry comedy. Like, there are a couple of parts where I laughed really hard, actually, but it is... It's the kind of comedy that's not for everyone because it is the driest thing. Mm-hmm. There's one. Let me describe one, one scene. They're um, after a fight. They have to. They're, they're driving to where the next fight is, and they have to take a ferry across a river. Yeah. So they pull on the truck onto the ferry, right? And um, Koza's nose starts bleeding from the fight. Okay. And his the manager's like, um, you know, the ferry's not leaving yet. Go. There's a bathroom like on the shore, you know, go clean yourself up. So he goes and he takes too long and the ferry leaves with the manager in the truck on the ferry. Mm-hmm. And so you see the shot um, that's through the windshield of the manager just realizing the ferry is moving, not really reacting. And then you see Koza walk out of the bathroom, like out of the back of the truck <laughs> yeah. and walk. And he's like runs up and then realizes he's too late. And there's just a long shot of the manager sitting in the car and you can see Koza... <laughs> out the back right and it's a long yeah. shot and then it cuts to the next shot we realize okay Koza's waited for the next ferry and it's from behind him and he's just standing on the ferry looking forward and you see on the shore the manager in the truck yeah it's a long slow shot as the ferry's pulling up just Koza just standing there long slow shot the manager leaning on the truck the ferry finally docks and Koza gets off and walks toward the manager and the manager says where the fuck have you been <laughs> <laughs> so um if you like a essentially five minute wordless build-up to a very dry joke uh, this is the kind of movie for you i would love that yeah that's that sounds marvelous uh so it's called koza i don't know how you can see it but i would recommend seeing it okay what do you got so i watched paulo sorrentino's youth youth I love this movie. I do as well. I think it is a deeply imperfect film that I still love. Um, and it, imperfect maybe because of its ambition uh-huh. and its desire to capture something. Uh, and it, it, wind, it wound up being a lot more of a, a lot more of a, uh, an ensemble than I thought it was going to mm-hmm. be. Um, yeah. Much bigger part for Paul Dano than I think is being talked yeah, about. Yeah. Um, and what's more is, is you go into this thing and you have a very clear idea, or at least I do, just that some characters are going to be a little bit are going to be condemned a little bit. Not condemned is too probably too big a word, but you see, you see like okay, Paul Dano's moody movie star and stuff like that, um, and you just think okay, I. I I think I know what he's going to be and that we're going to not like him and that sort of thing. But then he turns out to be, uh, I don't know. He turns out to be a sympathetic character as does Harvey Keitel, as does Michael Caine. They're all flawed people who are, are searching for something, um, some kind of understanding of themselves and of the world around them. Uh, and what's interesting is just, and they're all, they all seem to be either running away from something or, uh, anticipating something coming up in the case of like Paul Dano, which makes sense because he's a younger guy. And Mm so the whole, his whole life is before him, you know? Yeah. And so he seems to be just sort of, he's not running away from something. He is just like, all right, something, something is coming in my future and I'm not ready for it. So I'm just going to be here as long as I can try to calm myself down. And when it is revealed, Mm-hmm. what it is it's funny but it's surprisingly i i thought it was really emotional yeah uh when it is re- and i won't say what it is because yeah, i don't want to i don't want to ruin it for anybody yeah i wouldn't want to either but it is it is it, it, you're right it does start out as a really great visual gag that gets yeah. drawn out and then it turns into uh yeah we're being too vague people yeah. are be annoyed by that but it's uh but i thought the film was gorgeous um you know, obviously it makes me want to watch The Great Beauty, which I still haven't seen. Oh, you got to see that. And uh, Il Devo. I've never seen his previous English language film, This Must Be the Place, with Sean That's Penn. That's right, which I heard was good, not great. 
Yeah, it sounds interesting enough to yeah. that I want to see it. Um, I don't think I had realized because uh, I was uh, obviously I was looking him up after watching Youth, and I and I don't think I had realized that this must be the place was was him. So, um, yeah, it's a very striking visual style, a very striking storytelling style that reminded me a little bit. This is going to sound strange because the movies are not that similar, but pacing wise, it reminded me of North Fork. Oh, which I never um, saw. Oh, really? Oh, okay. I thought I thought you had. Um, which I'm like one of the only people in the world that likes that movie, <laughs> but uh, but I love it. It's just, there's a mournful quality to it while still being beautiful, and I don't know. It's just it manages to capture so many different emotions, uh, and it manages to be funny at times and heartbreaking at times. The performances are great all around. Um, you know, I watched uh, a, a screener. Mm-hmm. And I find that interesting because I feel like with a couple of exceptions here and there, it doesn't fit into, con- I feel like it doesn't con- fit into conventional awards categories or, or just like who Michael Caine is the lead if there is a lead, you yeah. know, and Harvey Keitel is supporting if, but he's almost there as much as Michael Caine. And meanwhile, then you have Jane Fonda there for five minutes and it's an, an electrifying five minutes. It's just, it's all this very strange, it's, it's a film that just really exists completely on its own terms. And I just was fascinated by it and I really loved it. Um, I'm glad that you felt that way because yeah. it's uh, one of my favorite movies of the year. Um, and I would uh, watch it again in a heartbeat, except that I have uh, still trying to catch up on everything else. Yeah. So uh, speaking of, let's get back to what I want. Why does this close? Why did this file close? I would so, tell you, no, uh, I'm almost of- <laughs> there. All right. Next one I saw. Now you'd think I talk about trying to catch up. You know, on on stuff I haven't seen, you'd think I'd be tracking down some of the best-reviewed films of the year or some of the, you know, most talked-about films of the year that I haven't seen yet, like mm. uh, like Mad Max Fury Road. I still sure. haven't seen Mad Max Fury Road. I haven't seen Brooklyn. Mm. Um, I haven't seen Tangerine yet. Right. Made time for Woman in Gold, though. Yeah. And uh, you know what? I'm kind of glad I did. Yeah. I think it's... I understand why it has, you know, a bad reputation. It's got a... Uh, it's got like a 50% Rotten Tomatoes, which I think some people might think, oh, well, that's mixed, right? That's half and half. No, that's an F. Yeah. Because you have to factor in the 25 to 30% of people who are idiots, even among <laughs> critics, <laughs> critics, right? Sure. So uh, that's an F. Um, and I understand it is uh, overly uh, adorned and it is sappy and it sometimes... Um, insultingly offensively superficial about things like the holocaust oh boy because that's a big part of the story that's right i don't know if you know the story um so i am definitely not saying this is a highly recommended movie i'm saying it's a c plus where other people have been giving it an f um and that that uh good stuff comes obviously from the cast um mostly uh ryan reynolds and helen mirren they're mm-hmm. the stars there and poor katie holmes oh <laughs> she is given like it's so the archetypal like our stereotypical archetypal supportive wife role sure. that it's, it's almost funny how supportive she is yeah. and how like i like he does the thing where he quits his job without telling her to pursue this art lawsuit full time mm-hmm. right and she's mad at him like she should be because they're uh, a husband and wife Obviously, like that affects her in a lot of way, and yeah, they have a, a kid, and she's pregnant again. It's a partnership, yes. you know, yeah. She gets very angry for about three sentences, yeah, and then you know is oh, supportive we, again. Oh, you, yeah, and yeah. that is so okay. I'm I'm talking shit about the movie again. I'm trying to talk about everyone in the world has talked shit about this movie. Um, it's there are things to recommend it, which is um, mostly the performances. Uh, surprisingly, Ryan Reynolds. More so, I mean, maybe it's that that thing that I've talked about before um, about actors being so consistently good that you don't give them credit for it. Maybe that's yeah. what I'm doing with Helen Mirren here. Uh, but I was surprised how good Ryan Reynolds is and also how effective his story is because he's, you know, she's she plays someone who lost her parents and mm-hmm. uh, her friends and her 
uh, immediate relatives in the Holocaust, you know. Um, he's someone who lost people in his grandfather's generation, his, you know, his uh, grandfather's generation. He, um, is a couple generations removed. And so in uncovering this law, you know, the story and pursuing this lawsuit, he like deals with his family's legacy in a way that you get the impression he clearly has not fully let sink in before. Mm -hmm. And so that becomes a really interesting story. And I think Ryan Reynolds, uh, plays it very well. What did you see? I saw, and here we go. We wanted to keep this short. It remind it, it remains to be seen if we'll be able to do so. Yeah. I saw Todd Haynes' Carol. Oh well, I've already, I, I've said so much about this movie that I don't know how much more I can say. Uh, right, but because I'm not g- gonna fawn all over it, uh, I feel like I get crap for that already. I gave it a mere three and a half stars out of five on Letterboxd, and okay. uh, <laughs> which is like a, some kind of travesty or something like that here's what i'll say uh well, there there's essentially a 70 percent. it's a c minus oh i guess i'm not happy with that right if you i if guess you i turn it into percentage that's a c minus right yeah i i guess so i think anything i think anything three stars and above is good um okay you know and so i go three and a half and honestly i would i would never think nothing about it is less than that but so many things about it are more Mm-hmm. Um, performances all around are amazing, um, as one would expect. Uh, and it's, it's gore. It is so gorgeous. It's so beautiful. But that um, beauty that you're talking about, to me at least, um, it's not just superficial. It's a no, it's not beautiful in, a, in an experiential sense. You feel like you can step into this world. Yeah. I feel like it's you like, have. And it's you... like Avatar. <laughs> <laughs> yet another comparison between Avatar and Carol. Um, That's probably true, actually, yeah. And I mean, it feels like the place you... Not only can you step in, but it feels like you couldn't get out if you wanted to, but you don't want to because it's so lovely. Yeah, it feels it feels lived in, but also somehow idyllic, um, which, which some of it is, you know, that we're often dealing with characters that have a fair amount of money. So On the one side, yeah. So their lives probably will be very well very well managed and it, and it needs, it will look a very specific way. But anyway, um, wonderful score by Carter Burwell. Yeah. Little Philip glassy, uh, more than a little at times to the point where I was like, wait, I thought like, I didn't, I didn't remember who had done it. Yeah. Um, and I heard, I heard you talk about that part that goes, yeah, that's what Philip glass sounds like. And also the score to signs by, uh, uh, who is that? Is that Thomas Newman? It's is it James Newton Howard? It might be James Newton Howard. Yeah, yeah. Who cares? Anyway, <laughs> yeah, I got it. Um, but the uh, yeah, and so I, just, I don't mean to say that you know. I mean, uh, Rooney Mara especially is is really special. It might be that the thing like what you're talking about with Helen Mirren. It's like yeah, we all know uh-huh. Kate Blanche is going to hit it out of the park. Yeah. Rooney Mara, we know she's good, um, but my really my only connection to her is a scene in Social Network, and then a very strange, unusual type of performance in Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, and then yes, she was also in Pan, uh, and it was it was smart for her to you know really push for uh, Carol for awards consideration over Pan, though it's close, it's pretty close. <laughs> Um, and so I didn't really know what to expect from her. And also she's definitely, definitely a co-lead. There's no question about that. Like she is definitely our entry point into this world. And I you really also saw her in her. That's right. I did. Yes. Um, and I, and I actually, and now that you mentioned, yes, I did like that. She's basically in one scene, right? Uh, yeah. she's his ex-wife. Uh, yeah. Or ex-girlfriend. Were they married? I think they were married, but I might be wrong. Anyway, uh, I've yeah, seen her in a lot of stuff. It turns out I saw trash. I saw side effects. I saw ain't them body saints. Oh yeah, ain't them bodies and the dying girl. That's as far as bad, right. <laughs> but uh, so so there's a lot of really great things in the movie, but for some reason, and and it's very well written. It's for me. It it I think it it adds. It's it's this idea of a movie being less than the sum of its parts or maybe exactly equal to the sum of its parts. Uh, but it doesn't, it doesn't 
come together into a movie that I felt super invested in, which is weird because I'm invested in Therese. Mm -hmm. I think she's fascinating and I want good things for her. And then, but I think it might be that Carol is so enigmatic and that's a, that's probably a good thing, but I feel like I need to get to know her more and like, I want to root for this relationship and I see that they're happy together, but I also, and this speaks to, uh, something I'll, I'll mention in a moment. Um, I see that they're happy together, but I'm not a hundred percent sure why, except maybe that they're finally allowing themselves to live this way. It's like, okay, well, if that's the case, then Carol could be anybody. And that's, that's not a thing that I can relate to or, or sympathize with. So here's what I thought we might do. Not right now, but for an episode in the future, it's a little conceptual. Okay. Things that are hard to depict in film. Maybe we could do a series about it. Okay. Because I would like to do a whole episode about love. Because specifically, I mean, obviously, love between two people, specifically romantic love, because there's just, when you see, you know, we would have to talk about actor chemistry. We would have to talk about the arc of a relationship so that it unfolds in a way that is organic and you can absolutely understand what this person loves in the other person. You know, it's, it's, but without spelling it out too much, because I'm sure if somebody were to, were to watch the movie of your life or the movie of my life, yeah. they'd be like, I have a general sense of why their wives love them, but not really, you know? Um, so there, it's such an intangible thing. And, f- and for me, because Carol wonderfully played though she was and very well written, uh, because she was so enigmatic, I couldn't quite figure out what... Therese saw in her beyond the opportunity. But if it's, if she's only an opportunity, then she's only a symbol and it's hard for me to root for that. Yeah. I don't think it is that I think she saw. Yeah. I don't think it's meant to be that. I think, I mean, the reason most people either fall in love or become friends or have any sort of relationship with another person is because they see something of themselves. Yeah. And so I think when she sees Carol just in her, I, I think that, the two actors and Todd Haynes and Edward Lockman and uh, Carter Burwell and everyone involved do a great job of getting this across. Just seeing her across the department store and just yeah. perceiving her stature, Rooney Mara, uh, Therese, as someone who doesn't have herself figured out, yeah. sees something that she probably couldn't put into words either, but yeah. sees um, there's a potential path for me. Like there's a woman who is. Um, in some ways, like all the other women in the store at, the, yeah. at this time, shopping for Christmas presents for her kids, but something about her stands out. She's carrying herself uh, in a way that I would like to see myself uh, grow into. And maybe that's maybe that's what she sees. Did you ever, as you're watching it, because there's an age difference, and because Carol is being played that way mm-hmm. with a very specific type of alluring confidence? Did you ever think that she was not a not a whole lot, but vaguely predatory? Yeah, especially the first lunch that they go yeah. to. It does have that, a little bit of a feel like, like what it's. I, I certainly got it at first, and then it goes away. But I'm trying to think like, well, what made it? What makes it go away? And I and that's. I think Carol is a very for me is a very good candidate for watch it again. Yeah, because I think once I know what the arc is going to be, I think I might be able to look for the more subtle details because it is not an obvious film by any stretch. Um, And so it's, it is a very good, sometimes wonderful film, but I just felt at arm's length from it. And I will mention that the private detective was played by the guy who is the Riddler on Gotham. Oh, is that who he is? Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. Um, All right. I just realized, for people who have watched Gotham and haven't seen Carol, you kind of just spoiled something. Oh, shit. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> um, it's not that big a deal. How much overlap do you think there is, yeah, actually? I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry, everybody. Um, so, moving on. I saw... Um, okay. I'll tell you. When I looked at my schedule of screenings that I had this week, mm-hmm. it's three, three movies, the next three movies I'm going to talk about, and I thought... Well, I'll hold off on my online film critic society voting until I've seen these, but I don't see it being that big a deal. I don't these movies don't look like they're gonna blow me away. Yeah. Two of the three of them did blow me away. 
um, very that, unexpectedly. That ain't bad. Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, the first one, a movie that I, I from, I mean, I, I tend to, I, maybe this is the downside of my avoiding marketing and just focusing on the reputation of the director first mm. and foremost is that I never had any confidence that I would like The Martian. Even when it started getting great reviews, I felt like I just, I feel like the wounds of Exodus, Gods and Kings are still so fresh. Like, I can't subject myself to another Ridley Scott, uh, you know, CGI spectacle extravaganza. That's weird. That sure is a melodramatic way of putting uh, who gives a shit, uh, (laughs) which is what Exodus, Gods and Kings is. Um, And what so many of his movies have been. That movie is... Uh, uh, it's yeah, it's drudgery. I don't like that movie. I forgot it. The like, I feel like I was wandering the desert for forty years. Watch it. Am I right? Um, yeah. <laughs> <Hey-o>. um, <laughs> so I even and and I you know I think another thing you can do is uh, even when a movie is getting great reviews, uh, almost unanimously, you can focus on the one or two negative reviews that like confirm what you thought. You know, oh, yeah. So like, um, <laughs> Stephanie Zaharik didn't like it um, from Village Voice, and uh, J.R. Jones from Chicago Reader didn't like mm. it. And so I was like, you know, those, what? Are, those are, are good people, and those are critics I tend to agree with. So I thought, uh, you know what? I think I'm in the clear. I'm just going to skip this one. But got the free screening, went and saw it. Uh, blown away. I mean, not it's it's not it's probably not going to end up in the top ten or anything. Um, but uh, I wrote a whole. I was so. Uh, inspired by it that I wrote a whole article. I don't know if you yeah. read my article on the website. I did not website. read it yet. But basically, I feel like this is the kind of movie where you can see, yeah, this cost, uh, this was made by a major major studio with major stars. It cost a ton of money and it was worth it for yeah. once. You can see the money up on screen. You can see the star, the star wattage, all that stuff. This is the kind of movie only a major studio or a hugely wealthy financial backer could make this movie in this way. And this is the kind of movie we need to be expecting from studios. Yeah. This is, I, uh, in my, in that little article, um, I compared it to movies like the Godfather and the Shawshank Redemption and Titanic, which are big studio movies sure. that are incredibly accessible, populist entertainments, but also great works of art. Yeah. And, this is like, this is the standard we need to be holding studios to. Yeah. Um, that you can make something that fully qualifies as popcorn fare or whatever, but is still cinema and art and um, has a motivation behind it and is moving and is also incredibly funny. Um, I laughed so much at The Martian, which is so not what I expected from a Ridley Scott movie, but hey, I th- forgot. Those, those Golden Globes considered a comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. but I mean, it is, I don't, I wouldn't consider it a comedy, but it is really funny. Um, and I should have realized, yeah, it's a really Scott movie, but it's written by Drew Goddard. Oh, there um, it is. I don't think I knew that. Uh, yeah. And he of course is known for, um, cinematically known for the cabin in the woods, yeah. but also was a Buffy and angel guy. Yeah. So I, and daredevil. Um, Oh yeah, that's right. I think I knew that. Um, and, uh, there are a lot of laughs in, in the Martian, uh, I thought it, I thought it was fantastic. You liked it, right? I haven't seen it. Oh, you haven't seen it. Okay. That's one. It's uh, it is pretty rare these days, just given how busy uh, my wife is with her with her job and stuff. Um, there aren't a lot of movies that she says, "Hey, I would like to see that with you." Right. Um, the Martian is one. Room is one because she read the book. Um, and so, but because she's been super busy. Uh, they're movies that are going to have to wait until around Christmas time when we're both taking time off. Right. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm excited to see it. But I but at the same time, I was kind of like you. It just it seemed like I'm sure it's very good, but completely unessential. Um, no, it's, it's, I feel no. I felt no driving urge to see it. And then the reviews came out. It's like, yeah, I'm I'm sure I'll like it. But it's just it it still is kind of low on my list, even well, though I'm sure I'll I, like it. I got I had this discussion on Twitter with. Um, uh, or, or, well, I keep saying our friend, but you don't, uh, my friend, Angie Han, um, that as far as, no, I still haven't seen Mad Max Fury Road, but as far as live action studio, like major studio releases, uh, it's Cinderella and the Martian. Those are the two of the year, um, that I think are, 
uh, fantastic. With Although the amount of one coming that this that I don't know if you consider, and we'll, we'll the with the amount of so. praise that Mad Max Fury Road has gotten. Yeah. What do you think the odds are that you're going to like it? I'm sure I'll. Not, I don't mean in a contrarian way, but like, do you really think it's? I like. You George, that I like gonna, George Miller. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm sure I'll like it. So um, you don't think you don't worry it's being oversold to you? No, and I don't think I really have that problem. Okay. Uh, I think sometimes it thinks I can go in and like a movie more because i'm not expecting much see yeah. the margin sure. maybe but um uh i don't I, I think i'm pretty good at keeping that sort of thing okay. in check um i do own mad max you're welcome to borrow okay. it um that won't happen uh, i have too much other stuff i so i already have two of your uh oh that's right uh i say two i have like five blu-rays because it's a box set yeah and i have one of your dvds which so dvd do you have i have et oh that's right um so uh real quick question before we move on now, this is a hypothetical question okay. because the Martian passes the Bechdel test. No problem on the strength of um, Jessica Chastain and Kate Mara's characters alone. Mm-hmm. But now you haven't seen the movie. You don't know what I'm talking about. I was also reflecting on the Bechdel test, uh, which I sometimes like to do after I've seen a movie. Um, and I was thinking about the scenes that feature Kristen Wiig and Mackenzie Davis. And I want to I put a, uh, a question to you okay. and, to, and to the listeners. Okay. Now, the Bechdel test requires that a movie have at least two female characters mm-hmm. who speak to each other about something other than a man. Okay. That's, those, are the, those are the things. Okay. I, I, now, I, I'm guessing what the question is going to be, but you go ahead. My question here is, no, I think, I, think you, I think you, okay. Yes, they're talking about a man, but it's in the context of them doing their jobs, right. which they're, that's not the question. Okay. To me, I'm, I think... I think that that um, does not violate the spirit of the Bechdel test. They're okay. technically talking about a man, but not as a sexual romantic object. Yeah, it's like once like he gets back, They're, I can't wait. The, yeah, no, these are incredibly accomplished and intelligent women doing their job. Yeah. Um, which happens to involve saving the life of a man. That's not. Yeah. Uh, anyway, my question is if you have a scene, five characters, let's say, okay. hypothetically, I can't remember how many characters in the scene. Three of them are men, two of them are women. Okay. They work together, they're discussing their work. It's a group discussion. But the two women never directly address one another. Does that scene pass the Bechdel test? I want to get your opinion. I want the listeners to comment. Hmm. Does that scene pass? Hmm. Does everybody else talk to each other? Are they the only two that don't talk to each other? Uh, mostly what it is is Jeff Daniels is their boss. And so they're all... They're all talking about the same thing, but most of the discussion is going either toward or from Jeff Daniels. They're sort of bouncing off him. I think it counts. I think I think they're they're seen as equals. They're part of this. They're on the same team. Mm-hmm. They're both talking. And yes, they might not be talking to each other, but given the context, it is it can be well assumed that in between this scene and the next scene, they're going to be. T- coordinating with each other to keep doing their jobs yeah um all right i want to get the listener's point of view yeah um because um um my gut was also that it passes but my wife takes a much more um legalistic i guess interpretation of the bechdel test okay um and uh there's something something to be said for the spirit of the law yeah you know uh next for me is krampus really yes <laughs> david i'm telling you you would enjoy it i don't know if i'd say you'd love it but you would enjoy it uh it was uh you know sometimes we all need a little break uh and i had just seen youth and carol one of which i love the other is i, I is respectable um but it was an opportunity to go hang out with a friend of mine and so we went to see krampus and uh and i was anticipating liking it because I thought I, I could see the tone, the presence of Adam Scott and Dave Keckner okay. kind of indicates what, what you should feel about it. Okay. Well, um, the presence of Adam Scott did not save. Well, I guess I'm a lot of people like that Piranha movie. Yeah. I don't like it that much, um, but you liked him in it. I remember. Yeah, he's good. Um, so here's what I'll say. Uh, it didn't take long. It really only took about 15 to 20 minutes before I realized, Oh, it's gremlins. Okay. It's it is that tone of Gremlins, and then since then, I was watching. Uh, I think other people have mentioned this as well, but uh, the the Red Letter Media guys were doing a, a review, and they said that it's not merely Gremlins. That's the one that I think of primarily because it's a horror movie that takes pl- that w- with a playfulness that takes place around Christmas. Um, 
But they also mentioned that it's like, well, there's a lot of tremors in there as well. And I realized, oh, shoot. Yeah, there absolutely is a lot of tremors in there. And okay. that's when I realized it's PG-13. It, it is a throwback to a different type of horror movie, very much from like between 80 and 90. Uh, and it huh. feels like that, but it also doesn't feel like an obvious throwback. Like, let's just reference this and this and this. Uh, the characters are real. Uh, they have a they have arcs or more specifically they come into sharper focus because a big part of the film is this little kid hates his family mm-hmm. he hates what christmas has become and uh and just resents these people and when they first show up they all seem very broad and very stupid and very obnoxious but over the course of the film you actually the, the viewer actually starts to see them as full-fledged sympathetic characters who have flaws, but they have strengths as well. And so in that same way, like you are kind of being put in the same position as the main character. And so, uh, so that's from a storytelling standpoint, from a, from a filmmaking standpoint, it is, there are moments where it's genuinely scary. The, the character design, I guess you could say of Krampus and his, uh, horrible minions, um, oh, is, minions. yeah, is at which, and once you see these minions, like, okay, this, this thing is gremlins all over, but, uh, it is just a very well-made, well-put-together film. I probably go, you know, like, you know, based on what it was trying to accomplish, I think it probably accomplished most everything. Now, the person I saw it with said that the ending was something of a cop-out, which from a storytelling standpoint, maybe from a thematic standpoint, I disagree. Um, I will be doing a more than one lesson episode about it, oh, um, which will be coming out probably, uh, the like Christmas Eve or maybe the 23rd. Um, it is, I'm not going to like rant and rave about it. There are way better movies out there right now, but it, it, you could do a whole lot worse than this movie. It's, and the guy who made it, I think his name's Michael Doherty. I don't remember if it's Michael, but anyway, uh, he made a movie a few years ago called Trick or Treat, which I've never seen, but I've heard great things about. Yeah, it has about. a great reputation. I haven't seen it either. So, and it makes me want to go back and watch that. So, I, I would, boy, was I surprised. I expected it to be like, hey, this will be a fun two and a half star, who gives a shit, let's kill some time movie. And I wound up being so much more engaged than I expected to be. Well, the, um, I'll tell uh, the listeners, uh, if you're looking for something to do on Christmas Day, and you were planning on seeing Concussion, okay. go see Krampus instead. <laughs> Absolutely. Because Concussion is a snooze it is a hmm. it is a swing and a miss that movie man and i i remember uh, i am a long time gq subscriber and the movie is based on a gq article um that i remember very well um about dr bennett amalu and for for what it's worth will smith does very much the impression that i got of him from reading that article all those years that stuck with me is what will smith is playing will smith is doing a uh, uh, a fine job, mm-hmm. but this screenplay does not seem to understand what the story is that it's telling. Basically, what you should have here is something akin to the insider. Yeah, that's what you should have. Anytime it starts to pick up some steam and go down that path and get good, it gets in its own way. By either focusing on the completely unnecessary ro- romance story between um, Will Smith and Gugu Mbatha-Ra, uh, or more often, it stops everything so that one character or another can give a speech to Will Smith's character about how, why, what he's doing is important and he has to soldier on, even though he's ha- facing some doubts about himself. And that's, it's constant. There are so, like... He spends more time. I'm quoting things I've already. I've already written my review, even though it doesn't come out for a couple weeks. Um, it's already written and saved, so I'm quoting myself here. Um, but I think he spends more time being told not to have, like, told to overcome his obstacles than he yeah. does actually having obstacles. Yeah. It turns out like 85 percent of the people are, are on board with him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and you've got a great cast, but they're all uh, pretty much wasted. Um, like Paul Reiser is in it, and I have to imagine this was a role that must have been bigger in the screenplay because mm. it's two essentially like two halves of a scene of scenes yeah. that like you don't need Paul Reiser for that. Um, but at uh, the same time, if you write it well, Michael Gambon's in one real scene of The Insider, 
but he looms large over that whole movie. Mm-hmm. Like if you write it well, yeah, yeah. then that's enough. Yeah. Uh, but I don't blame just, Paul Reiser. I, I'm sure the, the writer, the writing is not great. It's really not. It, it's, um, yeah, it definitely, I don't want to spend too much time on it. Don't, don't go see it. I will say that I, I didn't mention this in my review and I wonder, I want, I, I want you to see it so we can have a conversation about it. Okay. Cause I don't know how much of this is me just being, uh, just politically hyper attuned to depictions of, um, uh, you know, wealth or income inequality or whatever like that. Okay. Dr. Ben Amalu is a doctor with multiple degrees. He has worked very hard to get where he is, and he has a lot of money. That's fine. That's okay. true to the character. Yeah. But it sometimes feels like the movie is going out of its way to point that out in a way that goes against, like, if we're supposed to feel that the NFL is potentially threatening his career and livelihood, yeah. why are you then turning around and showing the scene where he's having a brand new house built in a Tony suburb and he has to sign for the installation of multiple flat screen TVs? Like, why is that in there? Why is the scene where he and Albert Brooks are talking about how they have the same BMW in different colors, why is that in there? Like, I don't understand why the it, it seems to be uh, reminding us of how much money this character, like how financially comfortable this character is. I have a theory. Okay. Having not seen the film. Mm-hmm. Bruce Wayne. Okay. So that we can see how much this guy doesn't need to do this. Like he can just sit back and be comfortable yeah, and he'll be all it. right. Uh, hopefully you'll watch it. And I mean, I don't wish it on you, but uh, for this reason, I hope you see it so that we can uh, discuss that. I'm excited for his performance and, uh, you know, and and you know I've, who's else? I've I've read a couple things, and I'm excited for old Albert Brooks. I love Albert Brooks in like I, I loved him in a most violent year. He's great. In um, and, I remember, uh, and I this literally kind of like that. This is gonna sound like a joke, but I literally had the thought while watching Concussion. Man, a most violent year was good. I wish I was watching that <laughs> <now>. <laughs> Um, yeah. You know who's good in it is um Michael Malley. Do you know him? Um, oh yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I know him. Um. I know him mostly from Glee, so I'm conditioned to when I see him, think of him as a really nice guy. Yeah. But he's not in this movie. Yeah. Um, and but he's he's really fantastic. Uh, anyway, let's move on from concussion. Okay. I saw Brian Helgeland's Legend. Oh. And three and a half stars. No, I probably go. Th- I probably go three oh. on that one. Okay. Uh, but some of it has to do with. You know, hats off to them for telling a different story. You know, it's it's these guys are twins. They don't get along super great. Um, right. You know, and so it's just like, okay, so that's a different type of mob movie. But I think I'm done with mob movies. <laughs> you know, after a while, you just, you know, and he tried to inject some life in it with like certain musical choices. And that's fine. You're not going to be Scorsese. Like, it's been done better. Um and just, I don't know, like, there's nothing really that wrong with the movie, except I'm trying to think what else could have been brought to it to really get me interested. And I can't think what it would be. I mean, you've got, you know, these twin, like, twin brothers, and that's already kind of interesting in and of itself, especially if you have a really good actor playing both. Um yeah. But I think it was just I think I think it needed to be more than that. I think that it needed to be maybe more of a character piece, but the the way the way it's narrated, like it just it feels like it's trying to emulate Goodfellas and and that sort of thing. And I feel like it doesn't it doesn't fit along those lines. And or or maybe it does. I maybe it maybe it is successful along those lines, but it makes itself uh inessential because well, I already have this other one. Mm-hmm. Um and then as far as Tom Hardy, which is the big thing everybody talks about, which is understandable because these are two distinct performances, like they're completely different. Um, yeah, this isn't – he didn't like employ minor like differences in facial expression yeah. to differentiate them. Yeah. They're clearly which, which wildly might, different Which might make – honestly, like, you know, this is going to sound mean – it's easier. He he oh, made yeah. easier decisions no, I, I compared to Dead Ringers. But I still think he or, made uh, or or what or or like adaptation or Social Network. But even Social Network, those two are so similar that yeah. they, it's basically the same performance twice. Um, but I think, well, I think you're 
I mean, I'm not an actor. It seems like you're right. It's probably easier. I also think it was the right choice for the movie that Brian Helgen was making for him to go broader. Sure, absolutely. The problem is that it does make so. There's Reg and there's Reggie and Ronnie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ronnie is one of the most loathsome creatures I've seen on screen in a very long time, uh-huh. and it makes it very difficult when, when. You know, you you do see that, like, yes, they are connected. Yes, they do love each other, but they also kind of hate each other. And one of them is a problem who who ruins things. Um, and so it's hard for me to be on board with him. Uh, it's like if you put Fredo and Sonny together uh, into one person, but made him actually have less uh, sense. Um, and so it's just like, oh, okay, this is... He's self-destructive. He's destructive of others. He's very childish and childlike. And, you know, more, uh, more power to Tom Hardy for committing and, and making it and creating a character that is not meant to be liked. Um, but the problem with that is that I don't like him and I don't want good things for him. <laughs> um, I want them to get caught. Uh, and what I... But there's still a lot. But isn't, I mean, I don't want to spoil things if you haven't seen it, but isn't the increasing loathsomeness of both characters, to me that kind of plays into the point of the movie, that it that it builds up the legend first, yeah. and as the, over the course of the movie, the the sheen falls off, or, or, or gets it gets grimy. And when it gets to the point, uh, again, I don't want to spoil things, but like, um, you know, Reggie starts off as a very suave sort of movie type gangster and then gets worse and eventually commits an act that I think even people who are uh, invested can't forgive him for. So I feel like that's that kind of is part of the point of the movie. Yeah. And and honestly, that's one of those things. I I, I don't think we've ever done an episode about titles, but I do want to do an episode Mm -hmm. about titles and that a title can let you can give you an indication of what you should be thinking. It's called legend. It could have been called the Cray brothers could have been called any number uh, of things. Yeah. Um, but it's called legend. And so along those lines, I'm, I'm with you. I, I absolutely understand, but even that is, has been done before and I don't require something to be completely new, but whether it be a cop show mm-hmm. or a mob movie or a zombie, whatever, it's just like, unless you're bringing something notably new to it, specifically for me in tone, then I'm only going to be so invested. Uh, it's why I, um, it's why I watched an episode of Peaky Blinders. Uh Um, and I just thought like, Oh, they're British. That's the one thing separating this from boardwalk empire. Um, and I stopped watching because it has a name that you don't want to like, I don't want to. Yeah, it's like the the IHOP commercials. Yeah. I was like, do you remember these IHOP commercials? Absolutely. Or Cliff. <laughs> Cliff from IHOP doesn't want to order yeah. the root and tootie fresh and fruity. Yeah, and so he puts a bag over his head or something. Yeah, or, yeah. That's what Peaky Blinders sounds like to me. It's like, well, I would watch that show, but I can't tell anyone I'm watching it because it's the most embarrassingly stupid yeah. name since me and Earl and the dying what have you. Yeah. So, uh, but there, there's still a lot of good in there, and and I do, I enjoy a lot of the supporting performances. I really enjoy uh, Brian Brown looking David Thewlis. Um, do you know who Brian Brown is? No. Oh boy. Uh, you know him if you saw him, he's one of those guys, but, and I, but I like David Thewlis in general. Like he's somebody you, that, uh, Oh, go ahead. Uh, uh it just, he's somebody that I feel like as an actor, he keeps getting like these smaller and smaller roles, but of course he's still David Thewlis and he's yeah. still great. And I just, and I haven't seen Anomalisa, yeah. but yeah, I do want to see, like, I want to, I want to. I think he's hopefully getting to that age now where he can get some really good, like middle-aged guy yeah. roles. Uh, I'm, I'm excited for that. Um, I was just going to say, did you recognize the albino guy from Snow White and the Huntsman? I don't think I did. Okay. I'm sorry. Well, he's the one who, um, again, to avoid spoilers, he's the one who is repeatedly offered a cigarette. Got it. Okay. Um, <laughs> it took me a minute to, to recognize, uh, um, the kid from Kingsman. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. and I was like, I know He's, I've seen that kid before. I thought he was good in this. Yeah, he was very good. Taron Edgerton? Edgerton? Yeah. All right. So, okay, we can move on. Let's move on to my final movie, which I'm so excited about, because I had, I was not down on this movie. In fact, I was um, curious, I guess. 
um, intrigued by this movie because of the story it is and who made it. And that's Adam McKay's The Big Short. Um, I like Adam McKay's movies, the ones that I've seen. Um, uh, I think he doesn't get enough credit because he makes comedies. Uh, but for him to be making this based on a true story, you yeah. know, um, uh, look at the recent past and the financial collapse and stuff like that. It did seem like a, a, a unlikely um, but intriguing choice. And um, he managed to make what is maybe it's it's a movie about the financial collapse of the housing market. Right. And it is maybe the most fun movie I've seen this year, uh, but also incredibly angry and sure. angering. Sure. Um, and sometimes really uh, heartfelt and heartbreaking. And uh, it's also like you would expect from Adam McKay, weird and makes mm-hmm. choices that you wouldn't, you won't see coming. Um, uh, I, I don't know what, what you haven't seen it. I haven't seen it, but, um, are you intrigued to see how are you where I was? Uh, I wasn't really intrigued at all. Um, it just seemed like, like clearly it was a passion project. There's no, there's no question about that. Um, but I think, because it wasn't really part of the conversation, it has become part of the conversation from an awards standpoint. Like it is with the the SAG Awards and the, okay. and the Golden Globes. Suddenly, people are talking about The Big Short as like some kind of contender, or at the very least. And I and I know awards don't mean that much, but it does. It does say, "Hey, pay attention yeah. to this movie." That honestly didn't seem very essential to me. Well, um, I mean, but I, 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 I like the idea of a comedy because yeah. in, in, in true strange lovey way, that might be the only way to process this shit, you know? Uh-huh. And I like yeah. the idea of that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is a, it is a furiously angry movie that is also really funny and does, um, it does some, some fourth wall breaking, which you kind of have seen in things like Wolf of Wall Street before, but it also does it, in different ways and occasionally for different reasons than you're expected to see. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you one, you and the listener, one, okay. um, to give uh, an Just impression. Just tell me. <laughs> to give an impression of what, like, the, the type of movie this is. There's one part where um, uh, it's Finn Whitrock and um, is it John Magaro? What's his name? Something like that? Oh, gosh, I don't know. Um, they come across this information about the, the people predicting the... Um, uh, the the housing collapse because the for those who don't know the premise of the movie is that it's a true story of some people who saw years ahead of time the housing collapse coming and um, used that prediction um, to make themselves very very rich by essentially betting against the housing market and yeah. getting uh, paid out. Um, uh, anyway, so it's the scene where Finn Wittrock and his partner um, come across this information. They're like, oh, my God, can you believe this? Can you believe this? And then Finn Wittrock stops and addresses the camera to let you know this isn't how it happened in real life. They actually – he find, his friend found out about it, some other thing. He read a thing. They talked about it. But they're just doing this for the movie. <laughs> like, just, And that's – uh, so it's not just there's also parts where they stop and they explain how like subprime mortgages work and how like how this thing built that's, up. That's helpful. Um, but that sort of thing also commenting on the fact that like we do this in a movie um, so that later when uh, Steve Carell's character does something outrageous and Ryan Gosling stops and goes, he really did that. It holds oh. some weight because, you know, like this movie's being honest about this sort of thing. That's nice. I like that. Um, so it has that sort of uh, fun tone to it. And um yeah, the the other parts, uh, some reviews that I've read have spoiled this, but the parts I'm talking about where they explain subprime mortgages and CDOs and synthetic CDOs and these mm-hmm. sort of things, um, the way those are done is unexpected to me and very funny, uh, and I'm not going to um, spoil them for people. Wow. Uh, but it is, um, I really, it's the kind of movie that's so bizarre and so funny that I've, I, I found myself like driving home from the movie yesterday and wondering like if there were a camera trained on my face with like night vision, how goofy would I have looked? Because I think I was just having <laughs> a blast watching this movie. Wow! And I, I probably had a real goofy look on my face, um, and then a, a real pained look on my face when sure. it gets to you know the 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 last act when the market actually does collapse. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, it's a fantastic movie. I've since, as is my style, I've watched a couple. I watched the trailers today after I saw the movie, and um, I realized that they are definitely trying to make. It's an ensemble movie in the sense that it has a big cast and there's no one lead. Yeah. But they are cutting the trailer in a way to make it look like all these big stars are in the same scenes together. Yeah. They're they're not like. Christian Bale hardly has any is great in it, but hardly has any scenes with any other actors. He's mostly on his own. In the Interesting. Movie. Um, Brad Pitt is also mostly on his own. It's uh, Steve Carell and um, Ryan Gosling do have a lot of scenes together, but other than that, it's mostly there's like four different sort of pockets of guys. Yeah. Um, and and they don't uh, they don't overlap that much. Uh, it's, it was an interesting way to tell the story, but it's probably again true to true to life. These guys didn't all know each other. Did you see Margin Call? I didn't. I want to. I feel like I feel I feel like you were like it's J.C. Chander who has you know done a lot of great work since then. Yeah. Um. But yeah, it's. I feel like. I feel like based on what people have said, it feels like having a triple feature of The Big Short and Margin Call and probably Wolf of Wall Street. Oh, uh, no, you wouldn't go with Inside Job there. May, maybe Inside Job. That's not bad. That's not bad. Um. But it's just, but like the idea of of taking outrage and turning it into uh, incredulity, mm-hmm. which then creates humor. I feel like that's. I mean, Wolf of Wall Street is is about as far as you can go with that. Um, would you say that this is comparable to Wolf of Wall Street, or it's a very different type of movie? Okay, I mean, it it, it apply it it it, it um, wields some of the same tools, I guess, but um, it's not slick the okay. way that. Um, it's almost sort of, um, scrappy, but it, it's, it's, it's messy looking in a way that is kind of probably that, that, that is part of the design, Okay, you know, um, cause Adam McKay is an improv heavy director in his other work and yeah. the camera work definitely bears that, uh, mark, you know, um, moving around, but he also has a, it employs a lot of montage type, uh, work because, um, it takes place over the course of like three years. And so there'll be a jump of eight months or whatever between scenes right. and he'll do a sort of a passing of time montage that is, that are uh, really well done and not, um, not cookie cutter, not like the kind of you would see in other movies. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, what's your last movie? My last one in the spirit of Christmas, I finally at long last saw white Christmas, the Michael Curtiz film. I've never seen it. Uh, yeah, I, I, didn't think I was going to like it that much. Uh, I'm not big into musicals and everything about it seemed like, I mean, when it's called Irving Berlin's white Christmas, that's just like, okay, I think the music's probably going to take center stage (laughs) here. Um, but, uh, and it's, it, it is in many ways, it's what I thought it was going to be, except it's much more, it was way more emotionally effective than I thought it was going to be. And it's not super, as tends to happen, it's not super Christmassy. A good portion of yeah. it is not necessarily related to Christmas. Um, almost like it's a wonderful life. Now, this one is called White Christmas, so you can't help but think in those terms. Right. But a good portion of it doesn't really have anything to do with it. So, um, but the music is good. I like, you know, I like Irving Berlin, um, and I think my, I I don't know if I've ever seen anything with Danny Kaye before. Um, he's the court jester, right? Yes. Okay. I haven't seen that. I've heard it's great. Um, and I don't think I have seen anything with Bing Crosby before, except of course him narrating, uh, legend, the legend of sleepy hollow for Disney. Um, so I, I was unfamiliar with, with any of them. I've, I've of course heard Bing Crosby sing yeah. before. Um, but yeah, the two of them have like a nice, a nice chemistry and, they are good singers, and those sequences are pulled off really well. Um, it's a very pleasant little film, and then, but there is actually a nice heart to it, and it's not what I thought it was going to be. And I have this—I don't know. There's a there are certain buttons that a movie can push, and they're trying to. So these are you know these are guys that are like are they're old army buddies. And they run across and then, but they're also like song and dance men. So once the war is over, they go and become fairly famous on stage and stuff like that. Um, 
and they happened to run across their old general who they loved quite a bit and was a was a good guy and he's now running you know like an inn that is not doing very well so they decide we're going to tr- do what we can to uh to help him out we're going to use our star power to sort of help him out and get some some people to his his inn so um but the the old general is played by an actor named uh, Dean Jagger, I believe, who was in, I think, 12 O'Clock High and won an Oscar for it, uh, which I've never seen. But uh, I really – his his character and his performance is probably the thing that was most effective. And he's not a singer. He's just, he's just a character. Uh, and you need to be – you need to feel sympathy for him. You need to feel bad for him without feeling like he is pathetic. Like, and so there's, that's the thing. There's a, there's a, a deep, a definite sadness to him, but also a noble sadness, which makes it so much sadder, uh, for me. And so all of his scenes are very effective and it really like once the, it takes a while for the narrative aspect of the film to really kick in, which is, Oh, we want to try and help this guy out. Uh, but once that does, because he's at the core of it, uh, both the way the character is written and the way he's performed really got me emotionally. And I was completely invested from then on. So it's, it's a, it's a perfectly fine movie. I enjoyed it. It's Michael Curtiz. You know, he, he can't make a bad movie. Um, and, uh, and I was happy I saw it, you know, it, it was one of the big Christmas movies that I, uh, had not seen yet. And, uh, and I enjoyed it. And I feel like if you like musicals and stuff, I think you would enjoy it. All right. Um, we need to. Uh, get going. So I just want to say, as far as TV, you still haven't caught up on the Amazing Race, huh? No, it, I, it's it's what I'll be watching during my two week Christmas break. All right. Well, um, it's a real bummer that you haven't caught up because this season is so fantastic. At this really? point, wow. At this point, I would say this season has had two, maybe three of the best episodes in the history of the show. Wow. Uh, and this most recent one, um, at the time of recording is uh is one of them where i was uh, uh i talked about it with uh, paul Goebel over on hey watch this with paul and david the other podcast i do um uh you know when my wife and i you've seen our living room you've seen we have a, we have yeah. a big couch it's like an l-shaped couch. we got yeah. a lot of room on that couch we tend to sprawl out when we watch tv together yeah by the end of this last episode, we were both sitting bolt upright on the edge of the couch. Wow. Uh, it was one of the most tense uh, episodes in, in Amazing Race history, and I just really can't wait for you to catch up so we can talk about this. Man, oh man. I'm so sorry. That's all right. Um, uh, what, what did you watch any TV? Yeah. Uh, so South this season of South Park has ended. Oh, really? And it is. it is a very strange ending. Because this is a season that had an arc mm-hmm. um, and a lot of different elements that seemed to come together in the last couple of episodes. And this last one, not only did it bring everything together, but it also introduced new elements, uh, specifically uh, the idea of gun culture, which is like, well, that seems like an arc in, of season-wide arc in and of itself. Um, but it ends, as so many South Park episodes and maybe even seasons have been doing the last several years, it ends on a really ambiguous note um where i believe either stan or kyle in response to a thing that is being said says this is going to be really hard Hmm. it's the last line of the season now he could be saying it about because because somebody is saying if we just do this we're gonna be okay Mm -hmm. and so he could be saying yes but doing that is going to be very hard or he could be saying i'm not on board with this conclusion at all but this person is still in power and so the next however long is going to be really hard it could go either way Mm -hmm. you don't know how it's going to be you don't know who's a hero you don't know who's a villain everything is really complex and it is exhausting and exhilarating at the same time it is this whole season has been so strange and so amazing um and Maybe primarily because just when you think – and this is some, something South Park has always done. Just when you think you know where they're going to co- fall on something, they will subvert that expectation and ba- in, in doing so basically communicate that, yeah, it's not that easy. It's not that simple. Um, 
you know, this person, like a big, a, the, the big thing that they're tackling this season is like PC culture. So they, yeah. the, there's PC principle. Um, and he is seen as a bully and a horrible, horrible person. Um, but the last couple episodes, they've started to redeem him to a certain extent and see that he at least does mean well. He's not looking to actually bully people. It just happens naturally. That needs to be fixed, but his intentions don't. Mm. But when he is, but he's a character so focused on his intentions that he doesn't, maybe he can't help but not care about execution. And so, but it still, it says that his intentions are right, you know, as opposed to just condemn him completely. It is so fascinating to me what they've done this season and you got, you've got to see it. And okay. I'm, I've, I've tried to specifically not give too much detail because uh, right. each development is very interesting and I feel like you would enjoy it quite a bit. Okay. So that is it for me. That's it. All right. Uh, that's it. Bye.